It's that time again! Hello, everybody! Happy Friday! Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Rory Sodder and the News. I'm Rory Sodder, your host. I hope you've had a fantastic week. I hope you have exciting weekend plans. Big show tonight, a lot to address, a lot to establish, many great guests in attendance. My first guest has had a hell of a career. He's had quite the life, huge resume, very excited to have him with us. Chadwick Moore, your first time on the program, my friend. It is an honor to have you here. I've been watching you for years and uh, following a lot of your work. Uh, but first and foremost, I always like to get a bio and a background and all that fun stuff when uh, guests first come on. All right, sounds good. Great to be here, Rory. Thank you. Oh, you want me to do it? Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah I can do that. How it all started for you, how, to got, how you right. got to where you are. You know, oh, you're sure. doing big things, man, making big moves. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll give the, anno uh, the, the annot annotated version. Uh, you know, so, well, now I have uh, this book out, Tucker, which is the biography of Tucker Carlson, yeah. authorized biography, and uh, the first of its kind, uh, as far as I know my second book but i got my start in i've always been a print guy i got my start in liberal media i used to work in book publishing for liberal book publishers then started writing for places like the new york times playboy magazine uh i was editor-at-large for out magazine the advocate which are the two big gay magazines i guess they used to be gay magazines i think they're all trans magazines now and um in uh 20 early 2017 i you know i i'd always kept my politics to myself because i thought mm -hmm. you know that's what a professional journalist should do and i didn't really cover politics at that time i did investigative features human interest stories um but early 2017 i got really fed up with the with how the media was acting and all the lies they're spreading about trump and his supporters and conservatives and i saw all my colleagues uh you know losing their minds after trump won the election so I decided to speak up and just, you know, I just wanted to like have my peace of mind. I didn't think anyone would actually see this or read it, but I did a piece for the New York Post where I just came out as conservative and it was a very innocent piece. I, I felt, I just sort of said, you know, I believe in the first amendment and I think that the media is kind of uh, corrupt and I think they kind of lie a lot. And I think they're getting a lot wrong and I just don't really want anyone to think that I'm a part of that club. I'm not like that. You know, I'm genuinely... Uh, a curious person and I don't hate Trump or his supporters or anything like that. Uh, but um, that was enough to get me, you know, fired from all my jobs, uh, blacklisted by liberal media, lose all my friends legitimately. But that was also the first time I met uh, Tucker Carlson because he invited me on his show right afterwards. And uh, since then I have been, I was a regular guest on his show. Uh, weirdly enough, I was a guest on his final show on April 21st. Yeah. And uh, I was also a regular on lots of Fox News shows, Greg Gutfeld, Steve uh, um, uh, Kennedy, a bunch of other shows. Um, since the book uh, was announced uh, and Tucker became uh, unpersoned at Fox, I've been you know, banned from Fox as well, which is fine. Who cares? And um, you know, I've, I've also been, you know, for many years uh, since leaving liberal media, I've been writing for conservative media. I'm an editor at The Spectator and write for the New York Post and uh, Breitbart and some other places. Man, I mean, where do I even start? You know, I, I want to go back just a little bit. So would you say your first big start, like the place you worked at would have been Playboy? Was that like your... I think uh, the New York Times was probably my big break uh, when I got my first piece published oh, you, there. Oh, you worked at the New York Times before Playboy? 
Yeah, as a freelancer, I was freelancing for both the New York Times and Playboy. Uh, I was writing for the Metro section of the po of the Times, where I was doing you know New York stories, human interest stories, and fun fun cool stories about New York City, which was a lot of fun. I I, I was far away from the political pages, which was nice. So so kind of like working for the New York Times, you know, when you did what what year what years was it exactly? Oh, this would have been. 2009-ish, I think, was my first story there. And then I was freelancing for them until uh, 2017 when I was canceled. And what kind of shift did you notice from 2009, 2010, 2011? And, and obviously, there was a pattern, I can imagine. There, were, there was something that was that didn't look right. I mean, because I, I remember the New York Times at one point was fair and balanced and, and – not in, not in every regard, but, you know, they reported the news like they were supposed to. But now it's just pure garbage. That is that's such a good question. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I noticed like the standards going way down because the contributor agreement for The New York Times, this contract that you read was so onerous. And I had a lot of respect for that. I mean, there was they put the fear of God into you if there was any sort of perceived um, uh, if you were, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, in any way compromised, if you're any way like using sources or trying to benefit somebody, if, you, if there's any sneaky thing going on in your reporting, you know, you have to be totally neutral, totally upfront about your sources, your connections to them. Uh, and also just the, I mean, it really had a high integrity that I respected a lot. I mean, I miss that about those institutions. And um, I just noticed the quality going down so low at the same time, both the quality of writing and the quality of opinion and quality of intellect. I mean, the paper is so stupid now. You read these like opinion pieces and there's such garbage. It's yeah. straight from like the fever dreams of the university system. And it, which is probably where everyone comes from now, right? So and I noticed they started because they have no money. They're getting like the dumbest 22 year olds in the world who are fresh out of Oberlin to write for them and write like big stories. And it's, you look at their like these, like these profile pictures on Twitter and it's some like, you know, like obese green haired 21 year old girl who's like, I'm a reporter for the New York times. And you're like, really? Like, is there any gray hair left at that paper? I don't know. It's just like a blog now. So I, I noticed that like the state, like the standards going down at the same time that the, 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 the political bent went down. But I think with all of liberal media, it was, out, it was almost out of their control. When Trump began to ascend, they just couldn't help themselves. They just went wacko and they haven't gone back yet because they were, it was such an affront to their world being and who they are and what they believe. And uh, they just completely lost their minds and they've not recovered from it. Now, I have to ask you, you know, you were obviously a part of the New York Times when it was owned by, I believe, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaking, the guy in Mexico, Carlos Slim. Is that correct? It was still the Schulzberger family when I started writing for them. And then Carlos Sim, Slim, Sims, Sims, yeah. Sims, he's like a telecommunications magnet yeah. in Mexico. Yeah, he came in, uh, I can't even remember now, but this was like early, like early 2010s, I think. Is when he and, came in, yeah. And does that, but doesn't that concern you, Chad? Chad, like in regards to foreign influence owning these American newspapers that are, are supposed to be reporting the news in our country, and and all of it, it's just it's horrible. It really is horrible. Well, yeah. Look at Fox; it's owned by Australians, so there's that. Yeah. But <laughs> the, con the, the the amount of ways they're compromised, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and one thing that that we that people always liked about the Times was it was for a long time a family business. It was not owned by any larger um, entity. Uh, not like you know Washington Post being owned by Bezos and and everything else. 
Um, now I don't follow the times anymore. I don't keep track of that kind of stuff, but I don't even know who they're on by now or what is going on with them. And what do you think? Wait, as far as I know, doesn't Bezos still own the Washington post? He was talking oh, yeah. about, he was talking about selling it. Do you think that's actually going to, going to come to fruition? Do you think that's going to be a reality? I'm not sure. Um, you know, it seems like even if newspapers are losing money, it seems like really powerful people still love owning them because it's a, it, it can benefit their business in other ways by being, by controlling messages, you know, yeah. uh, and same with cable news channels. I hear you, man. And in regards to the New York times, I mean, your time there from 2009, you said till 2017 overall, did you enjoy it? I mean, was it a, a good work environment? Was it, were people friendly? Was it, was it fair? Was it cordial? Was it, was it one of those things where they told you where you, you can't put this in this article, you can't do this, you can't do, like explain it a little bit. I had, so I never like went into the, I was a freelancer for the, for the city beat. So I never really went in there. I just worked from home and the, yeah, you know, the editors I dealt with, I liked them. I thought they were great. I had fun. Um, you know, we piled around. I thought they were really smart. I respected their editorial style. You know, I thought they were, you know, good people. But these weren't political editors or opinion editors. Like, I had nothing to do with that part. Uh, so I didn't have any complaints. You know, I deal with photographers occasionally. They were all cool people. Um, it was just, you know, but again, I was like in my own little world. So I don't even, you know, <laughs> I, I can't really speak to the other stuff. And how many things like would you write there that would actually get published versus things that would not get published quite a bit. I mean, basically everything I wrote did get published. I'm trying to think if there's maybe one or two stories that would get scrapped with just for normal reasons. But um, I think everything I wrote, yeah, because I would pitch and they would have to approve the pitch. So uh, being, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I want, no, no I, you wanted to continue with your thought, my bad. Uh, I was getting, well, because I, I was far away from, you know, the live wire politics. I mean, like I was doing stories about like, you know, I was yeah. in New York story, like human interest stories. It was fun. You know, it was super fun. I was really grateful for it. So you, so your freelancing didn't revolve around politics. It kind of revolved around like, what would you say? Just pop culture, cool, trendy things, stuff going on that people want to know about. Like, is that fair to say? Yeah, it was like for the times it was, uh, you know, I was doing stories about like, you know, just interesting New York stories, like, you know, weird, interesting neighborhood characters interesting buildings you know like it was very fun i mean i love that stuff it got more so when i got kind of pushed into politics was at my other gig which was at the same time i was writing for out magazine and the advocate mm -hmm. so summer 2016 i was sent to um orlando to do the cover story for the advocate on the pulse terrorist attack that killed 49 people at pulse oh, nightclub yeah. that affected me i mean deeply it was heartbreaking i was there you Horrible. know as the bodies were so warm, I flew down. And that is when, you know, I was filing stories for Out Magazine, the same company, Out in the Advocate. So I was filing stories for Out.com while I was there, then also working on the cover story. And, you know, my editors kept saying, you know, well, you know, I, let's stay away from the Islam stuff. I think this is a gun control issue. And I'm like, mm, I, I think he said Alu Akbar when he shot it up. I think it's, a, it's an Islam, Islamic terrorist attack. No, 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 we don't want to focus on that. That's when, like, I started kind of wading into politics when I didn't really want to or mean to. There have been other instances. Um, I'll tell you, you know, if you're interested, it's like I would say the first time, actually, my first kind of big break from mainstream media was when, when I started realizing something wasn't right. You know, I was very naive. And when I realized that something wasn't right was very unexpected. I was sent to Russia in 2014 to write a story, cover story for The Advocate about uh, gay rights in Russia. There was a um, uh, the big news at the time for about six months because Russia was getting ready to host the Winter Olympics that year. 
all the newspapers, all the media was filled with this story that like Putin was putting gays in concentration camps. And I was like, send me there. I want to write about this. So I got there and I realized that, you know, I spent over two weeks in, in Russia and I, you know, long story short, I realized that like the media was getting everything wrong. Like they were like intentionally lying about what was happening. And I was so beside myself because, you know, I, this was, you know, 10 years ago. So at the time I like, you know, believed that journalists were honest. I trusted the New York times. I trusted the New Yorker magazine, which is doing a lot of reporting on this. And I'm like, wait, none of these people have been to Russia. I have, and I'm a gay dude. And like, I'm talking to all these people and like, I'm seeing what's happening. I'm like, they're so full of it. And that's when I, my first break with mainstream media, when I started realizing like, wait a minute, like, why is everyone lying about this? That's when I started looking more closely at everything in the news and, and started doing my own research and not just, re, you know, taking what was coming to me in the New York Times or other places and began really digging. That was like my first break from that world because I just started questioning everything. And then every time something didn't seem right and I looked into it, I realized that they were lying or they were wrong. And that really came to a head in 2016, not with, you know, with everything with that year, the way they're reporting on Trump, the way they're reporting on Hillary, then Pulse happened. And then right after, and then I saw the lies about that. And then my very next assignment after Pulse was I was sent to London to write a profile of Milo Yiannopoulos, if you know who he is. Love him. I love yeah. that guy. Been yeah, dude, he was since. running Yay 2024's campaign. I love him. He is, Milo. yeah, yeah. So I wrote this profile of Milo and I like barely knew who he was. And I thought it was just going to be a funny, silly piece. I wrote it for out and I met him and I'm like, wow, I, you are not what I expecting you to be. You know, he was so, he was really funny, really smart, really warm. I had a great time with him. We're still friends to this day. And, brilliant, uh, brilliant, yeah. brilliant mind, brilliant mind. Oh, absolutely. I, I was so impressed. And then like everything I read about you painted you completely differently I wrote a profile of him that I thought was super fair. I treated him no differently than I would have treated some Hollywood celebrity or some liberal or whatever. I just wanted to tell a story about someone, which is what I did with Tucker in this book. I just wanted to tell this person's story. Uh, and uh, that piece came out and, you know, that was the first time that I kind of was at the, the receiving end of the mob when and everyone started coming after me and saying, you know, how can they publish this? And, and I'm like, what did I do wrong? I'm like, I've just wrote a profile of a guy. I was assigned to this story. I did it. Um, but I knew it was a good story. I knew I did nothing wrong. And that was really the beginning of that story came out September, 2016. That was the beginning of me being like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm done with these people. I'm done with liberal media. These are people who do not represent me. Uh, you know, I don't know what I am, but I'm not that, you know? And I don't think my beliefs have changed really at all. I've, I'm always the same person. Um, you know, I've been galvan I've become more galvanized on certain issues and I've, I have, change my mind on um two big issues abortion and global warming those are the two issues that i that you know i used to i used to subscribe to the abortion narrative and i used to believe in global warming and um those are only, those are really the only two issues that that since then i i've had a change of heart about everything else it's it's just it's bizarre um but uh yeah that's that's kind of my story i gotta ask you um in regards to milo why do you why do you think they painted him in such a bad light? I mean, I, and I understand he's a conservative, you know, and he comes out and he and he's a gay conservative, and the liberals don't like that. But they really targeted this guy harder than most people. I mean, they really went after him and mm -hmm. fucking just made his life a living hell. Yes, uh, the simple answer is because he's a he's a cultural figure. He is a pop. He was in 2016. Remember, he was a pop star. He was like Mariah Carey. 
he was so funny and so wicked smart and so insanely popular in the same way that Trump is a, is a pop culture figure, which is why they hated him so much. Mm -hmm. uh, the left cannot have that. You know, they want to control the pop culture. Only they can be cool and funny. Uh, they're fine with, you know, boring talking head conservatives that are sort of like controlled opposition. They can't have young, fun, attractive, hilarious, intelligent, and to boot gay <laughs> cultural figures like that who are um, running, running rickshaw over them and making them look absolutely stupid and ridiculous, appealing to the youth culture, you know, is what, which is what scares them the most because they need to believe that they have that uh, on lockdown. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, both Trump and Milo were the, the two biggest forces that year. And they both appealed to young people. And my and, and Chadwick, I have to ask you, did you ever get the scoop or the rundown on what happened with the kind of uh, the split uh, between Ye and Milo in terms of the campaign and how that just kind of fell through? Uh, I'm not sure what's going on. I mean, I think they're still working together. I just is. I mean, is Ye still running? I, I guess. It's uh, I mean, it's, I, I really don't know at this point. I really don't know. I, I know they're still, you know, they, they're still in contact and, and uh, on good terms. I do know that. And, and I got to ask you, you were in Russia. Is Putin the boogeyman that everybody makes him out to be? See, is, is he really the boogeyman? Is Russia really this awful, horrible place that treats people like terrible, you know, human beings? Because I've heard that Russia treats people very nicely. As long as you don't break the law, as long as you, you know, you know, follow their curriculum and respect their culture, they'll respect you. So I'm not an expert, but I can say from my experience, this was 10 years ago too, but just my experience then, uh, the people loved him. The Russian people loved him. Um, because you know what, Chadwick, he cares about his country. He's, he, and that's why I think they love him so much because he's so devoted. He's so dedicated to his craft and that's protecting his country and doing everything what's right for his country. And, uh, the guys, the way he does it, I mean, the guy ha has no fear, the sacrifices he makes. I have to admire his courage as a leader, regardless of whether or not he's done some horrific things. Well, he's, he's also, you know, he's a strong man and Russia needs a strong man. They don't know any other kind of leader. Yes. And he's kind of like a father figure because Russia has the highest rate of father, fatherlessness of any developed nation in the world. Also the highest rate of abortion, the lowest uh, life expectancy. The life expectancy in Russia is like 63 or something. It's insane. So Russia is, wait, I love the- Wait, I, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Say, say that again. The, the life, life expectancy in Russia- the life expectancy in Russia is 63? 63, 64, something like that. I might be off by a year. It's the lowest in the developed world. It's, it's I mean, it's, Russia's a, it's a hard, horrible country. I can say that. I love the Russian people. I really, like, I liked, I liked the people a lot in Russia. But I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of a miserable place. People don't live long. Uh, highest rate of abortion in the developed world. Highest rate of fatherlessness. Um, uh, it's very like, it's extremely lawless. It's extremely corrupt, extremely lawless. But on the surface, it's very orderly. But underneath, it's all, you know, it's all bribes and backstabbing and this kind of stuff. I mean, that's like Russian side. It's like the Wild West, but with a very clean, organized veneer. That's the impression I got, at least, when I was there. I mean, it's, it's also, I mean, it's a country that doesn't really know who they are after communism. Mm -hmm. When communism left, you know, we were this thing for 70 years. And when that went away, they said, well, who are we? And so they sort of looked back to what were we before communism? Russian Orthodox was a big thing. So then the whole country became Russian Orthodox. I had somebody say to me, it's a country that's 98% Russian Orthodox and 100% atheist. 
So it's like still a country very much looking for an identity. I think Putin gives them that. It's a country very much looking for their place in the world that doesn't want to get screwed over by other nations. And I think Putin gives them that as well. And when you say when you say it's a country run by kind of a bribe system, do you mean like Mexico? If you get pulled over by the cops, you basically have for doing something wrong, you have to give them money. I think it along those lines, yeah. But it's uh, it, everything appears more orderly than in a place like Mexico, which can appear very chaotic. Uh, yeah, it's like it all. I mean, that's the impression I got at least is that it's it's extremely corrupt, and you know, bribing the police is probably going to help you more than one time in your life, et cetera, et cetera. And what parts of Russia were you in? Moscow, I assume. Yeah, Moscow, and then uh, I went to a small town outside but i wasn't allowed to leave that area you have to get like special visas to travel around the country and you said you went when this was uh late well it would have been it was late it was november 2013 oh wow so have yeah. you thought about going over there anytime oh soon? i'd love to go back I, not now obviously <laughs> no, but <laughs> have, you thought, have you thought have you thought about covering the war and just seeing what's going on on the ground over there Are you curious? i have uh yeah i've asked a spectator to send me over to ukraine uh they didn't but maybe they will now i don't know i would go back in a minute yeah i, I would totally go back and write about it and I, I gotta ask you this you know you were talking about earlier about the new york times piece that you talked about the pulse nightclub shooting and they really kind of got new york times got triggered by some of the wording you were using and how you kind of described it um and then you also said you went down there immediately uh, were you were you down there within hours of the incident yeah uh i got a call that morning i didn't even know what happened saying yeah. you know can you get to the airport right now and get to orlando and i'm like what what the hell's going on and then right. i turned on the tv and saw it and went straight to the airport Damn. And did you ever do any research or do any pieces on the whole Las Vegas shooting? Because that was even a bigger one. Well, that is still one completely shrouded in mystery. And, and yep. someone should write a book about that, to be honest. Uh, no, I didn't do any reporting on that. I mean, I followed it closely, but that was um, it's still a mystery, isn't it? Nobody knows what happened and why that guy did it. It's really I, strange. It makes me wonder, Chadwick. I mean, there, there's just no I just don't think there's any possible way this guy could have pulled this off alone. I mean, there, there is so many unanswered questions. There are so many things that are not being revealed to us. And the government lies to us every single day, every single day. And they've been doing it for years. And then it's on to the next news story. And then people, a lot of people forget about things. And then, you know. I think it's still the, the largest mass casualty event in the United States. Isn't it it? Is. Yeah, yeah. In U.S. history. Yep. It's crazy. And I got to ask you, what changed your mindset on global warming, on the abortion? Kind of explain that to the audience, because I, I think you had an awakening and you saw you saw the reality rather than the kind of, you know, people you were following that you thought, you know, had good intentions. And maybe some of them do, but they're just led wrong politically. Yeah. I mean, abortion, I mean, I've always been and still am, you know, I'm, what are, what are my political beliefs? I'm like, I'm the leave me the hell alone party. You know what I mean? Like right. that's my political beliefs in a nutshell. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I guess, cause I was, I mean, I was deep on the left. I live in New York city. I went yeah. to, I worked in media. I went to like create, I studied, I was a liberal arts student. All my friends were like creative people in Brooklyn, you know? Yeah. And so of course they're all like super pro abortion and now they're probably like super like kill the baby and whatever. But <sighs> At the time, I, I, my, my thinking at the time was like, was like the personal freedom idea, you know, like 
my, I guess to my body, my choice, but like you should have the right, whatever. That was like my thinking, but I didn't think about it too much. And it wasn't until, you know, I mean, in order to support, I don't know how you feel about it, but in order, in my opinion, in order to support abortion, I mean, it's just the simple, you have to do so many mental gymnastics about like when life begins and what's a life. It's pretty simple when life begins. Like it's pretty simple. You don't really need to like put a date on it. Like, you know, when life begins, uh, when the cell, when the egg meets the, the, the sperm and it starts dividing cells. Um, so I just sort of realized as, as I got out of that world of, of, of liberalism and just, you know, confronted that, that conflict in my thinking, I'm like, no, it, it, it's murder. I'm sorry. It is like, you can't look at it any other way. I mean, that was a pretty simple way to go through with, um, global warming. You know, I don't think people who weren't on the left don't understand like how important global warming is to them. I mean, they are inundated all day long with this narrative that, Human beings are evil. You know, everyone thinks the world is beautiful. Everyone loves nature. Conservative, liberal, we all love nature. They live in a world that says there is no more nature. Humans have killed it all. Every time these people see a parking lot, they want to cry. You know what I mean? Because they're innovated, they're inundated with this narrative that like human beings are this cancer on the planet. And it affects their thinking more than I think conservatives realize. It's why they're so support. I think it has to do with why they love abortion so much. Because like the number one I think thing that I think the left wants is fewer people. I get, that's like the number one thing that they want. And a lot of that has to do with, with what they believe about the climate. And I mean, to, to kind of get, you know, I was, because I used to only follow mainstream media, um, you get the same narrative and you read, you know, all 98% of scientists say, and, and the polar bears and, you know, and you're like, oh no, I love polar bears. We can't be killing polar bears. Uh, literally, I know polar bears are actually doing better now than they ever have in recorded history. There's more of them on this planet than since we started tracking them in the sixties. But um, all you have to do is just find like the real science on that and ask the real questions. And you realize that it's, it's total crap. And then you have to ask yourself like, what, who's pushing this and who does it benefit? And is the federal government, the same people that run my local post office that can't get me a package on time. These are the people that are going to save the planet. If I just give them more money, you know, like, I don't think so. Uh, so that was, I think that, that understanding the, 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 that's like a harder one for the left to let go of because it's, it's, it means so much to them. It's ingrained in, their, their worldview is so um, d- disdainful, especially towards other humans and people. And that's so integral to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and a lot of these scientists, these, these 98% of scientists you're referring to are paid by the government. They, they yeah. are not independent individual you know, voices. These people are told what to read off of a script and what to tell the masses and then people buy into it. And then it's this big narrative and it becomes this big political scenario. And not even that it's if they want a grant, all the grant money is only allocated towards this stuff. So like if I'm a scientist at the university of little rock and I study koala bears and I want a grant <laughs> to go study koala bears, I have to figure out how to write that grant. Well, my grant's going to be, how is climate change affecting koala bears? Oh, great. You get it. You know? Yeah. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's the only way you get grant money. Yeah. And aren't these people the biggest hypocrites on earth, Chadwick? I mean, you've got these assholes like Al Gore, John Kerry, Leonardo DiCaprio flying around on their private jets, giving all these lectures on how we need to save the planet. And they're burning more carbon emissions than we do in a lifetime. Yeah, of course. Exactly. And, you know, the whole electric vehicle thing. Actually, I have an article coming out on Sunday in the New York Post about um, trees and wondering why 
big city Democrats hate, why aren't they incentivizing gardening? Why do I have to pay? If I want to plant a tree in New York City, why, why do I have to pay a sales tax on that tree? That tree will literally eat 50 pounds of carbon a year out of the air. But instead, you're telling me I can't have plastic straws and plastic bags. Like, go screw yourself. Uh, but you can find that article in the Post on Sunday. I go, well, I, I, I go a little because I love nature and trees. So I go a little nuts on my love of trees and why Democrats hate them so much. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm in Palm Springs, man. There's palm trees oh, everywhere. Fantastic. Dude, I love it, dude. I love it here. It's, par it's paradise every day. Well, I, I, have, I have to ask you, you know, in regards to um, the abortion issue, you know, the, the, these people say, you know, they 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 care about school safety and guns, but they don't they don't care about, you know, a baby being born. They want to kill all these babies. How do you view that scenario? Don't you think that's the biggest hypocrisy you've ever seen? Yeah, well, they'll, they'll also turn that around on conservatives and say, like, oh, you're pro-life, but you like children being slaughtered but they don't understand that you know the point of the second amendment which honestly i never i never like i was always like pro-gun but like i didn't you know liberals don't think too deeply especially about polit philosophical political ideas they're, they're activists they're not philosophers it, uh yeah. and when you start thinking about like the point of the second amendment you know i mean this is like you know people come into this when they're very young then you understand the importance of that but they, they don't want, um, you know, security guards in schools. They don't want uh, anything that would actually protect kids. But I've, I've, I've so much lately in recent years come on board with this SSRI thing with when you look at these young men who shoot up schools, you look at the medications they're on. Yep. And it's like, and actually, I didn't even think about this until um, actually it was Greg Gutfeld who told me this, who's, who's since blocked me on Twitter after he kicked me off the show. But um punk rock yeah i guess whoa, that, that that's a that's a big uh that's a that's a big uh kind of revelation I, I that's huge i didn't even know that 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 he kicked you off his show explain that wait what yeah uh after we published the after we announced uh my new book tucker which is out now uh which is in may i was supposed to be on gutfeld's show the next week they booked these things weeks in advance and uh, I've been a regular on the show every month since it launched. I was in the regular rotation. Uh, and then I got an email. They kicked me off the show. And then I was kicked off all my upcoming Fox appearances because I wrote a book about Tucker Carlson. Uh, and because they had just taken his show off the air, they have to pretend that he doesn't exist. And he, you're, you're not allowed to say the, the name Tucker on air at Fox. That's been in effect since April 24th when they canceled him. Uh, so then uh, I just tweeted about it. And then Greg blocked me on Twitter and then sent me some crazy text message. And I'm like, well, you're the, I'm like, you know, Greg, I know Greg personally didn't do it. His show kicked me off the air, which is, I didn't say he did, but the show did. Uh, and, um, but uh, you know, he, that's, that's what happened. I mean, like, whatever. I, I, I didn't expect they would have me on again. I'm not, I'm not upset about it, but you know, people should understand how this world works, I think. And are you and Greg still friends? No, he hasn't talked to me. And I, I don't, he's mad at me because I, because I let everyone know that I'm not allowed on Fox anymore because I wrote a book about Tucker Carlson. I'm like, grow up, dude. I, I, uh, there I are other people at Fox who I'm still very much friendly with and, and I still very much like a lot. But And, and I do, I do want to get to that Tucker book and, and the Fox News thing, but you were saying something. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. You were talking about uh, the shootings and just the abortion scenario. Oh, yeah, the SSRIs. The SSRIs, yes, yes, thank yeah. you, thank you. I was um, Big Pharma, yes. I was because I, I I always you know I read people talking about that a lot you know and you know sometimes like I don't know if that's real maybe they're conspiracy theorists I don't know 
And then I was on um, Gutfeld's show once, and I was I can't remember what the topic was, but I was talking about how when I was in college, I started taking um, I was prescribed Welbutrin, which is an antidepressant, yeah. but I was prescribed it to quit smoking. I used to be on it a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, I know it. Oh, well, I'll be interested to hear if you had the same experience. So I, I was on it not for depression, but to quit smoking. They used to prescribe yeah. it to quit smoking, and uh, and then I told a story about how like the warning label said may cause suicidal thoughts. And I'm like, that's a weird, that's a weird warning for an antidepressant. And the, um, the pharmacist, I said, what's that all about? The pharmacist said, Oh, well, you know, like it's usually for depressed people. And sometimes, you know, depressed people, they're sad. They don't have a lot of energy. Like they want to kill themselves, but they don't have the energy to do it. And this medication gives them energy and they kill themselves. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty messed up. And he's like, well, don't worry about it. You're not depressed. And I was like, okay. And so, um, I started taking it and it said it would take about like a week or two to kick in. And I remember like after a week or two, I was sitting down by the river in this town where I went to college and I started feeling like I was insane. Like I was losing my mind. Like I didn't know it was real. It was like the craziest. And I'm like, what is happening to me? Do I have to go to the psych ward? I don't get it. And then I'm like, maybe it's these damn pills. So I just stopped taking them and then problem solved. So I told that story and, and then after the show, Greg, I can't remember why I was telling it, but then after the show, Greg said, um, he brought up like, you know, that makes me think of all these kids who are on these drugs who do these mass shootings. And I was like, oh, cause I was like, yeah, I've been there. Like I felt totally insane. And if maybe if I, if I, if I were prone to anger or rage or violence, I would want to, you know, do something if I was in that state of mind. I mean, I don't know, but like that really got me thinking about it. Cause I'm like, I've experienced how, those drugs make you can make you feel like you're totally insane, like literally mentally insane. Uh, so that's why, you know, when it comes to these mass shootings, I'm that, I mean, that's why I keep thinking more about this. And you always hear about all these medications these young men are on. And we didn't have mass shootings like that when we didn't have all these, we weren't drugging our kids into oblivion. And even Tucker did a segment on that. Uh, not too long ago when he was still at Fox, I'm sure you recall. Yeah. Uh, he did a study on, you know, how it was, it was associated with school shootings. And he also did a study showing that SSRIs do nothing. I mean, they, yeah. they, the, the scientific facts show that they, for the most part are a placebo and yeah. they really don't do anything for the individual. And all these people are convinced that these SSRIs are helping them but in reality, they're only hurting them. Yeah. 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 I remember that segment. It was a really good one. Totally. Yeah, man. And, and I, 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 the whole, this whole Fox news thing, like what do you think of the operations, how it's being run right now? I think it's a shame. I think ever since Rupert Murdoch gave it to his liberal kids, it's all gone downhill. And I can tell you when it really went downhill is when Roger Ailes died, the greatest to ever do it in TV history. Nobody can do what he can do. And when he died, it was game over pretty much. You just, it was the end for Fox. That 100%. Ailes was beloved. He started the network. It's his network. He was absolutely beloved. Anyone who still works at Fox or what, anyone who was there while Ailes was there uh, will tell you the same thing, that it's not the same network. I mean, it's uh, – let's see. I've talked about Fox a lot lately. Um, it, it's run by incredibly stupid people, like incredibly <laughs> yeah, stupid people. And people who still work at Fox tell me management is incredibly stupid. Uh, and it's they're, they're not only completely out of touch with their base, 
they sort of actively hate their base. They sort of hate the people who are supposed to watch them, which is why they treat them so badly, which is why they constantly offend them. Uh, I think Tucker was the last straw when they got rid of him. Uh, his, it was purely ideological. There's no other reason why they got rid of him. It's because they want to, they don't want that voice in the mainstream media. They have other business interests that don't ally with, ally with that, um, that uh, politics. And um, I don't think that those people who came to Tucker are ever coming back to Fox. Tucker is bringing millions of people to cable who wouldn't normally be there and don't belong there. And in a way, Tucker was sort of artificially extending the life and the relevance of not just Fox News, but all of cable news. He was bringing, he had the highest ratings of 18 or 25 to 54 year olds, all of cable, even 25 to 54 year old Democrats. And Fox had done so much to alienate and offend its viewers over the years. Um, calling Arizona early for Biden is one thing that comes out. But I think lots of people still stuck with Fox because they thought, well, they can't be that bad if they have Tucker Carlson on and they let him say these things. And once they got rid of Tucker in such un an unceremonious way and gave such a middle finger to his millions and millions of fans, it, that I think was a final straw. They're not going to bounce back from that. And he had the number one show on TV and they get rid of him. I mean, what a, it's a terrible business move. Uh, but at the same time, don't you think they probably got a lot of dark money in order to make this happen? So they, they don't really, they don't lose a lot in the end. I mean, something has, so, cause it, it just doesn't make sense to get rid of your number one guy. It, it, well, it does when you, when you understand the mentality of Fox leadership, which is that it's the brand that matters mm -hmm. in Tucker's case, it's the eight o'clock show that matters the hour. It's not the personality. So Fox thinks that, um, all of their personalities are interchangeable and they don't matter and there's nothing special about them. And to be fair, that's absolutely true for basically everyone on cable television. Uh, you know, any host can disappear tomorrow, be replaced the next day and viewers would never notice. But with Tucker, it was different. I don't think they understood that Tucker was a movement in his own right. Uh, they just figured it's no different than when Bill O'Reilly left, Megyn Kelly, Glenn Beck, Lou Dobbs. I mean, you can name any any number of people that in Fox thinks, well, we're Fox, we're invincible, we're a juggernaut, we'll bounce back. People will be mad for two days and then they'll forget about it. Um, that's 100% Fox mentality. Um, I don't know if they took money to get rid of him, but you know, there's companies with controlling interests in Fox like BlackRock that certainly uh, did not like what Tucker, you know, BlackRock produces weapons of war. Tucker was the only voice in mainstream media to oppose the war in Ukraine. You know, there you go. Uh, I think that, that for many of those people, money isn't the issue, or at least Fox's money. Uh, there's other money to be made by companies that have controlling interest in Fox. And uh, again, they think that they are invincible. They'll bounce back. And what was more important to them was ideology. They didn't want to see that ideology that he um, represented spreading more. And they, more importantly, didn't want it to have a say in the next presidential election. Now, of course, that's spec backfiring spectacularly. Trump just announced he's not going to do their stupid little BS town hall that's next week. And instead, he's going to go live with Tucker at the same time, which is really quite hilarious. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I have to ask you, um, what was it like going on Tucker and being able to clear your name? You know, I think that was probably pretty special, you know, just that he gives somebody like yourself a platform and just, it seems like he's so genuine and just so authentic and he cares and he doesn't, he doesn't want to play into these corporate assholes that are trying to tell him what to do and he just wants to be like one of us you know yeah that's you know that's what i think is the portrait that 
I really painted from the in the book, you know, as like I spent, I got to know him so well over the last year that we we're working on this, and yeah, I wanted to tell the story of of, and it's an honest story of of a three dimensional human being, which he very much is, and mm -hmm. he's someone who you know isn't doesn't care about politics per se. He's far more interested in questions of morality, spirituality, family, beauty, nature. Those are the things that Tucker really cares about and loves to talk about. And we spent many hours talking about those things. But he sees those as also integral to politics and politics informed by those things and how we perceive those things and, and treat those things in our culture. And I think that when people read the book, that's what they're going to discover about him, on top of him just being absolutely hilarious and, you know, a really fun guy to be around. Uh, but, you know, we had many great, wonderful conversations and, and so many of them are in the book. And I really hope people enjoy it. And how often... Um... How often would they tell him, Chadwick, um, of various stories uh, that he was about to put on air that don't do this, Tucker, don't do this? Because I'm sure there were a lot of warnings to him, but he's that type of guy where he just doesn't care. He's going to he's going to go with his gut. Um, but, yeah, tell me about that. Well, he, I, so he told me that, um, you know, he, that never happened, that they had total they didn't run anything by anyone first that they had total editorial control on what they wanted to put on the air. Now, you know, there were occasions that afterwards when there was like a backlash or a boycott of a show, you know, someone would call up and say something, but they would right. just say, oops, sorry, you know, and go on. But he said he was always grateful for that. You know, he never had the Murdoch. The Murdochs are big war people. They love war. They love Zelensky. Uh, but he told me explicitly that they called him up and said, we disagree on Ukraine, but you, you do your show your way and we're happy to disagree. And, um, you know, whether or not they're being sincere in the end, that's, we don't know, but, um, you know, he told me he was always grateful for that and that, you know, he, he did have all that freedom. Now, let me ask you, was his exit the way it happened? Because as far, as far as I can recall it, the reports I read, he was ready to do a show that day. Yep. And then they said, you're done, dude, we're cutting the cord. He'd already written his monologue. I, read that monologue. I know what he was going to talk about. Uh, and uh, he got a phone call at about 11 in the morning. It happened to be the six year anniversary of his show moving into the 8 PM time slot to the day. And he thought Fox news president, Suzanne Scott called him. He thought she was calling to congratulate him on the anniversary. And instead she said, we're taking you off the air. Goodbye. Thanks. Uh, he's still an employee of Fox news right now. He's still under contract. He's still getting a paycheck to not have a show. Uh, and they still have not given him a reason why they took a show off the air. Now let's let's talk about this. How long are they going to be paying him, and is there a chance that they bring him back? Well, yeah, I don't think there's any because chance. Because if they're paying him, I mean, it's like right. They're paying him uh, so until his contract runs out, which is um, right after the next presidential election. So they're paying him to shut up. Uh, which twenty five million a year. I can neither confirm nor deny that number, but it's a lot of money. And it's worth it to them to, to for him to not be out there that much money. He's trying to get out of the contract. He wants to be done with it and wants to start his own thing. Uh, of course, he's on Twitter, but he's not being paid by Twitter by Elon Musk, and he's very limited in what he can do there, according to his contract. So um, it's uh, that that's make of it what you will. It's it's worth that much money to Fox for him to not be on the air every night until after the next election. And Chadwick, I heard legal proceedings may be coming forth with Tucker uh, towards Fox News. Do you know anything about that? I do know he's lawyered up and, and they're trying to get out of this contract and see their way around it. Uh, but I don't know any, the most recent on that. So, you know, when you were with him, were you with him like 
constantly writing this book? I mean, you said it was about a year, about a year period, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would come and hang out with him like for, you know, a week at a time here and there. Like he lives in um, both Maine and Florida. So I went to both places. Uh, So I'd go and spend time with him, come home, go and spend time with his dad, come back, you know, interview, work from here. Then if I wanted to spend more time with him, meet up again. Uh, That's sort of how it went for uh, about the last year. Nice. And, and what's it like, man, hanging out with the number one talk show host? I mean, he just seems like the coolest guy. I mean, it's and, great. And, it's and he fun. has so many talents. He's such a smart, talented guy. I mean, I've seen him out doing doing so many things on the water. You know, yep. he's very athletic. Uh, but but go ahead. I want to hear you. Big thoughts. outdoorsman, loves um, hunting and fishing and loves his dogs, loves his wife, Susie, more than anything in his kitchen. Susie's wonderful. Um, they, they insisted I stay in their home with them, which was, yeah. So it's like me waking up in the morning, having coffee with Susie and in comes Tucker in his boxer shorts, hair messy, you know, voice groggly morning. Uh, and then, you know, it's talking for the next hour about whatever, just, you know, BSing about whatever. Um, so that was kind of what it was like every, every day I spent with him. Did you ever talk to him about his CNN days? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a lot Crossfire. of that in the book and yeah, Crossfire and MSNBC. He was also on there. Uh, so we put all that in the book. Um, but, uh, I gotta, I gotta jump off on another hit right now. I didn't know oh, okay, real, real I'm quick, sorry. Quick, I want me to cut you off real, real quick before you, before you go, I got to ask you one last thing. And then, and then, yes. and, but working at playboy, talk uh-huh. about that just for about a minute or two. A minute. Of- uh, I wrote, I was freelancing for them. Um, I playboy always had amazing writing. I think now it's gone full trans or whatever, but I will say, like, recently, the editor I worked with at Playboy, uh, he tried to make the magazine. He wanted it to be a conversation between left and right. And he wanted to put people like Candace Owens in there, people like Blair White. He was publishing me. Uh, actually, he said, I ran into him once in a bar in L.A. randomly. And, and he said he, uh, he, I asked if he was still at Playboy. And he said, no, I left. And I said, why? And he said, actually, they wouldn't run the last story you wrote because it, it was you. And they, want, they didn't want any more conservative voices in there. And this is a liberal guy, and he, but he was like an old school liberal. So I don't know what Playboy is doing now. I know they make all their money from licensing in China. They don't really make their money off the magazine anymore. But, um, but historically, I always thought Playboy was just a cool magazine. And, and I, I, would, I obviously wasn't there for the pictures because that's not my flavor. But um, now I don't know what's going on. It's a shame when those, those once great American institutions uh, go woke and go broke. Did you ever hear about that report that they were potentially coming out with an OnlyFans type of? Oh, I did see that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's going to work for them. What what do you think Hugh Hefner's thinking in his grave right now about his brand? I don't know. Didn't he go kind of lefty in the end? I don't remember. I don't know. Yeah, I don't really remember. But I I will say, though, he did build something pretty impressive. And then to see something like that really just crumble. Um, do you think it's bad management in a lot of ways is is why it's happening? Or do you think it's them just going with the wokeness agenda and wanting to be a part of everybody else? Probably that. And also just the rise of free porn. That's not, uh, not as classy as playboy was. I can say that, um, you know, I'm sure all of that helped contribute to it, but, but playboy used to be quite, um, I don't know. It was gentlemanly, at least back in the early days. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I hear There's you. There's no more gentlemen left. Me, that's the problem. I know. I hear you, man. I hear you, and you're still writing for the Spectator, right? That's right. Yep. 
Oh, you're you're a, you're a contributing editor at the Spectator, and you're the editor in chief of Outspoken. And wait, wait, tell me what you do at Outspoken, real quick. I didn't. Oh, that's that. kind of that's been um, that's on pause for a second. But yeah, I'm still I'm still at the Spectator right and, now. And, I, de- I do have to jump off. I'm so okay, sorry. Uh, Chad. We, we got we'll get you back here soon, man. I yes, love talking sure. to I'd you. Love to. I love all talking right. to you. I could talk to you all day. Me too, I tell man. everybody where they can find you, and tell everybody what you want the biggest takeaway from this book to be. Uh, you find me on, on X at Chabuk underscore more. And uh, you go to tuckerthebook.com if you want to order the book or find out more information. Um, and, you know, I, I want people to uh, read a book about a really sort of fascinating, complicated man and not just a, a caricature like he's portrayed uh, as in the media and sort of understand where he comes from and what he's about and how he became so influential and, and beloved and hated by so many millions of people. And Chadwick, can we expect him to be creating his own media company in the near future? Because that's what I I've been think you can as soon as Fox takes their chains off of him. I love it. I love it. Well, Chadwick, <laughs> all right, man. God bless you, man. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you soon, my friend. God bless you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. We'll be right back, everybody. Coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. This is Rory Sodder and the news. We'll be right back. I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm excited to announce my new product, My Coffee. I get products all the time from entrepreneurs for my new platform, MyStore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. I spent the last four months doing my due diligence, and this family-owned business micromanages every step from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever going to have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras. Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants, which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA. It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use the promo code and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery, or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, plus it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now. Can you please tell the jury why you're here today? Miss Hurt accused me of abuse. Ex-husband is brutal, cruel. This is humiliating for any human being to go through. And all false. 
Amber Heard forever changed Mr. Depp's life and reputation. Behind the fame, you're going to see who the real Johnny Depp is. Depp was the one who wanted the cameras in the courtroom. She didn't. I would argue it's a PR campaign disguised as a defamation case. There's the man himself. It's been a social media circus of commentary from creators and influencers. Did you commit any kind of prank? Absolutely not. On my side of the bed was human fecal matter. <laughs> this has moved away from a news story or a lawsuit. And it's transformed into a cultural moment. People are live tweeting. People are live streaming. Where does it end? The engagement is phenomenal. Videos can be very easily manipulated and republished. We're being influenced by bots interacting with bots. Johnny Depp is clearly winning right now in the court of public opinion. I've never been so scared in my life. She's acting. This trial is about so much more than Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. Why are we all so fascinated with this case? Because they're famous, because of the details. What did the jury see? It just kicked me. It didn't happen. I don't know who to believe. I was hitting you. Mr. Heard, Mr. Depp is your victim, isn't he? This is not so much about the legal merit, but rather what the public perception is. And that leads us to the real question, which is, what is the actual truth? cancer is still spreading. I'm afraid there's nothing else we can do. There is one person who might be able to help. Our program is a two-pronged treatment outside Mexico City. The results have been stunning. She saved my life. You're in very good hands with us. After that, what happens then? Your whole life happens then. John Kramer. According to these scans, the tumor was never removed. How much time do I have? Months, at best. I still have a lot of work that needs to be done. Intended to cure me, but what I have planned for each of you is very real. The only thing I have not provided is your anesthetic, but trust me, you will want to remain alert. Men to cheat. You pick John Kramer? Please don't hesitate. Place a big enough piece of your cerebral tissue into the glass enzyme tank. This will save your life. So sneak.
Retribution. It's a reawakening. Live or die, the choice is yours. Some of our choices. And we cannot escape the past. Ethan, this mission of yours is gonna cost you dearly. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. It's been a long time, friend. You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. Listen to me. The world's coming after you. His fate is written. Shall we write yours, too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. your objective what's your ultimate objective your life will always matter more to me than my own none of our lives can matter more than this mission I don't accept that Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back, the my pillow guy. And you're looking good. He's still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever, my pillow 2.0. <gasps> wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took my pillow's patented bill and combined it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented my pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, MyPillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that MyPillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. MyPillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of MyPillow. 
The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is gonna give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side. Well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit MyPillow.com. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or a dempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back, coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. This is Rory Sodder and the News. My next guest has had a hell of a career, amazing resume, what a journey. Uh, Richard Vag is with us. Richard, how are you? Uh, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming, man, and uh, your first time on. Uh, give us a little background, a bio, how it all started for you. All that fun stuff. Well, I was in banking for most of my career. Nice. And then got into the energy business for a few years and uh, have been in venture capital uh, for about the last 10 with a brief detour to be secretary of banking and securities in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Wow, man. So let's let's start your earlier year. So what kind of inspired you to get into banking? Was it kind of a family business sort of thing where a lot of your parents or siblings or relatives in that kind of industry? I didn't even know how to spell the word bank. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I was out of money and had to drop out of school and oh. looked around for a part-time job and I hear you. You know, almost almost got a job as a prison guard, but 
I, I didn't get that job and I got a job in a bank instead. And, the, and then the next 30 years happened. I got to ask you, what made you want to go work in a prison as a guard? That's a, that's a tough, that's a tough job, man. That's a tough, that's a tough thing. That's, you know, those, those are some uh, nasty boys in there. Those are some- I think it paid $9 an hour and the other job paid $6 an hour. I you know, it was, right. I was, I was 18 years old. What did yeah. I know? No, I know. I know. And what, what year was this? Oh, this would have been 76 or something like that. Damn. Damn. And I mean, the banks since then, I mean, you talk about how different they are today compared to when you started. It's like it's it's apples and oranges. It's not it's it's unbelievable. Uh, the shift. Well, there's been a shift in technology. There's been a shift in all sorts of things. And there's been two or three or four financial crises in that period. So. I kind of feel like I've seen it all. So, so you when you when you first got the job at the bank at eighteen, um, how long? You know, obviously you started as a as a clerk, cash. You know, uh, you know, doing different transactions for people at the window, and then eventually, I assume you probably be became manager, and then kept moving your way up, right? Yeah, and you know, they they apparently ran out of options because I became CEO at some point in time. What age did you what age did you become CEO? I became a bank president at age 29. And I'm and I'm 67 now, so that was a long time ago. You should be very proud of yourself. Can I, well, can you, I, 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 I feel very fortunate and very lucky, I'll be honest with you. Like God God is good. God is great. God, I, I, I have a lot of folks to be grateful to. Absolutely. And faith, I'm sure, has helped you along the way. Well, you know, there are dark moments along the way for sure. Yeah, I hear you. Dude, 29 years old, president of a bank. I mean, that's not an everyday. You don't hear that every day. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and, I'm oh, and oh, by the way, I, I thought I knew it all. And Richard, I interview, I, I've been doing, I've been interviewing people for seven years. I've probably interviewed at this point over a thousand people. Uh, 29 years old, being the president of a bank. <laughs> Good Lord. That's... Well, I, I, you know, you, you're too kind. I, I felt lucky. I'm just being honest. I feel lucky to be on your show today. Well, I, I, it's a privilege to have you here. And so then, so you were, pre what, what bank was it? Was it a local bank uh, where you were from, like uh, your hometown? No, it was a, it was an, it was actually a bank uh, that we had helped start. And, um, we um, it was a national consumer credit bank, so we made loans all across the country. We 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 grew to actually to become the largest credit card issuer in the world uh, for a brief period. And what were your loan? Were your loans reasonable in terms of interest rates, or were they re relatively higher than the average place people would go? No, we you know it was competitive, so we had to offer really premium pricing. So premium being low. In this case, so you know, we pioneered a few things like a co-branded credit. It was a long time ago, you know, the airline right. co-branded credit cards and others, where we we gave points and now we we offered very competitive rates and you know we got involved in all that introductory rate stuff that came along and uh, we I think we had a great product. And Richard, you said you started this company from the ground from the ground. How many um, banks eventually did you guys have? How many locations? 
we, we grew to be about $70 billion in loans outstanding with about 60 million customers. So, you know, we got, we got, we got big, we had like 25,000 employees and, you know, it, uh, time, time flies when you're having fun. And Richard, what about locations and states? Like what areas were you in? Well, we were, a lot of what we did was even in those days was virtual internet based and oh. what have you. So we had maybe, maybe, uh, I can't remember exactly, but let's call it 12 locations across the nation. But much of our business was remote. And how, so you were, you were president, you were president at 29 and then you were, you were doing this. And then when did you get out of the banking industry? How old? Well, we, we sold our bank, you know, we, we had How old good... were you when you sold? Oh, Lord, it would have, it would have been. In your thirties? No, no, it was, uh, you know, I would, I would, my, I would have been in my early forties or something like that. We. That's still, phenomenal. that's still phenomenal. No, we, uh, like I said, you know, we had good fortune. So what, what were at the, if you don't mind me asking just the numbers at the very end, how, like, if you don't mind saying like, like talking about that, like the assets and everything you accomplished and when you sold it, do you mind sharing that? No, no, no. A lot of it's what I already mentioned. We were about seventy billion in loans outstanding. I think the transaction was about a nine billion dollar transaction, and you know we had about sixty million customers. So, you know, it was a, it was a, you know, compared to what has happened here lately, you know, it was nothing, but it was big for its day. And then what happened to the people that bought it? How did they do with management, and where did they take it? Well, it's the, the, the portfolio we originally built is the portfolio, credit card portfolio of J.P. Morgan Chase today. So it, it continued to do really, really well. You built. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm trying to understand this. Well, you know, the banking industry that time. was. You, no, so you so you started a. Like you, you obviously didn't you started a, like something that was big that was affiliated with Chase Bank is what you're saying? No, no. I was, I was saying at some point along the line, Chase Bank came along and bought our bank. Oh, bought it. Okay, bought you guys. Okay, and then and then the man and then so so Chase bought you out. So it wasn't some other mom and pop. So now Chase, you know, oversees that. Okay, okay. Wow. And what year was this? You said in your 40s, but what year would this? Oh, be? that would have been the late 1990s. Okay. And, you know, that was our opportunity to exit. That was, you know, that was the finish line. You know, we got paid for the stock that we had in the company and we got to go do other things. Yeah, no, I hear you. And then, so after that, were you just done permanently with banking? Were you, were you did you stay away from it? No, no, we, we had one more go at banking. We started another bank, that was kind of an internet bank. This would have been in the like 99. Kind of so. like a PayPal sort of thing. Yeah, PayPal before PayPal. In fact, I think some of our guys went to work for PayPal later. But oh wow, uh, yeah, we did it for a while, and then we sold. You know, we so we saw started an internet bank and sold it a few years later, and then we got into energy after that, and uh, venture capital after that. How'd you do with selling the internet uh, bank? How'd that go? The that went fine. It, you know, wasn't as you know we we didn't have it for as long as we had had the previous bank. And uh, uh, Barclays Bank of London was looking to enter the United States 
And so they approached us and we sold our bank to them. And it's, it's still there now. It's called Barclay Card US and it's a subsidiary of the London bank. So that was our second success. You know, they call it, we call it an exit. So that was our second successful exit. Good Lord, man. I mean, it, your story, your stories and the life you've lived and what you accomplished. And, and you know, were, did you get a lot of like in, instilled work ethic at a young age from your, from your father, from your parents, from your family? Was, was, was that just like kind of grained into you? You know, you're being so nice to me that, you know, I, I, I just want to say thanks, but yeah, no, we're, I had a childhood where I had to work from the beginning. I think when I was 15 years old, I was a bus boy at Denny's restaurant. And so, you know, there was never a time from that point time on in my life that I wasn't working. You know, and I got promoted to dishwasher, you know, and, uh, you know, I thought I was on top of the world making a dollar 85 instead of a dollar 60 an hour. And, you know, and, you know, and on from there on to work for a dry cleaner. So, you know, it was a it was a skyrocketing early career, man. And, and so, you know, did you always know, though, did you always have that feeling that you would be big someday, that you would create all these empires, all these companies? Oh, absolutely was that, was that in your mind? Was that was your drive there? Was your motivation there? Or did you see yourself just working the nine to five and just living the status quo? You know, I, I didn't have either thought. I didn't think that I was going to conquer any worlds. And I didn't think that I was going to be status quo. I've always cared, as I know you do and, you know, your listeners do. I always cared about doing a really good job. And I always was conscientious in school and I was conscientious in my job. But I never thought I'm going to be at this level 10 years from now. But, but I also didn't think you know, this is, you know, this is enough. And, you know, I want to be, go home every night. And, you know, I, I, I was, I had a work ethic, you know, for yeah. whatever reason and, and enjoyed it. And I still enjoy it. You know, I still work hard and I still enjoy it. And you'll never stop. Will you, you're, you're, you, you just love doing it. I feel like you're one of those guys and I, I admire your types and, and you guys inspire me that you guys will work until the day you die because it's just in your blood. It's in your DNA. It's in your nature. It's just who you are. You don't, you don't want to be sitting I'm, around doing nothing. I'm just trying to keep up with you. <laughs> I, 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 I'll work because I love it. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of things now that are different and writing this book is one of them. And um, so, you know, I, I, I don't do things I don't want to do by and large at this point in my career. Uh, but I, I'm, but on the other hand, I'm getting old and things are starting to fall apart. So I'll, I'll work until I fall apart completely. Wait, what's falling apart? What's going on? Oh man. You know, once you, once you get, I'm 67. So once you, you get to that great, age, dude, you look like, no, if I had to guess, I would say early fifties. You don't look at any, you don't oh, look at your sixties, bro. Where, you don't look, where can I send the gift? You're, you're in your sixties? No way. Where can I send the gift? No, it's true, bro. It's true. You don't look anywhere near in your 60s. I'm surprised. So, well, you know, yeah, it just come look at my calendar. You see how often I have to go to the doctor for this doctor and that doctor and the other. It catches up with you. What happened? You got some health stuff going on? Oh, it's, you know, your Achilles heel goes out and then your back goes out and then your hearing. Oh, you name it, you know, so. 
I, it's, I, it's hell getting old. I hear you, man. I hear you. I I I feel like I'm getting old, man. You you look you you don't look. I'm thirty. I'm thirty two, man, and I miss being twenty. I miss being. I miss being fifteen. I miss being ten. I miss I miss just being young. I just don't. I don't you're, want. To... You're you're plenty young. And... I wish I had a rewind button. I wish I had a pause button because there are so many great moments that I wish I could just go relive, and I can't. Don't we all? But by the way, at thirty-two, you will relive most of those moments, whether you realize it or not. But you know, and you know what I also noticed though, as I get older. Time goes way quicker than when I was a young kid, if that makes any sense. Of course it makes sense. But but you're you're living the dream and you look like you ought to be in a Hollywood movie. And uh, thank you. I I, I, I think you're going to be able to relive your triumphs many, many times in your career. You know, I, I'm doing the best I can, man. We do. We all have struggles, though. We all have things we're working by, on. By the way, I'm very sorry you have to live in Palm Springs because I know that's a terrible place to have to live. And. You you sub you probably suffer a lot as a result. It's it's a beautiful place, man. I can't complain. It is uh, it's you know it's palm. The restaurants suck. Uh, It's terrible. No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something though, Richard. It's uh, it's pretty conservative here. You know, people think that you know worth worth. worth, uh, Yeah, no, I it's it is absolutely and probably pretty elderly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Most most of the people here are retirees who are conservative. And then you've got a lot of working class. But yes, you obviously have that, you know, 30 percent small area that is occupied by the, you know, LGBTQ community, which, you know, that that's it, it, that's fine. Um, you know, they can live their lives. But um I would say Palm Springs is probably more conservative than it is liberal. It's, that's Frank Sinatra country. Exactly. And that's why I tell everybody Frank Sinatra made this place famous. Bob Hope, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, Warren Beatty, Marlon Brando, um, Charlie Mia Kaplan. Uh, what? Mia Farrow. Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, it goes on and on, dude. This place is, this place is and it's still the same as it was in the 70s. It's not commercialized. Every building is still old, like beautiful though. But like, it's just, I just, I I like how I don't have to deal with like a lot of traffic. I can get from everywhere from A to A to B easily. Um, And, you know, there's no crime. And you go from golf course A to golf course B. Exactly. The the golf capital of the world, uh, the nicest resorts. I mean, the the most beautiful scenery. The worst and, crime. And the Betty Ford Clinic's out there too, isn't it? It's true. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So you, so you can intersperse the Betty Ford Clinic into your golf, and you know, and you have it all. Absolutely. And I'll tell you something. The worst, the the worst, um, the worst part of. Wait, I, I just lost my train of thought. There was something really important. There, there is no worst part to Palm Springs. So that's no, why no, 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 no. I was gonna say. What was I going to say? Ah, I hate when I lose my train of thought. Damn it. I hate that. Have you been here Probably quite a bit? 32, that starts to happen. No, the, no, the summertime when it gets to be about 118, 120. But I've learned to adapt to it because I would much rather just, you know, be here and be grateful and not, you know, whine. And that's 75 in January, I assume. Uh, about 80. Yeah. About 80. 
It's dry heat too. So even if it get, you know, the beautiful thing is even if it gets 115 here, Richard, um, it's still dry heat. It's, it's not, like humid, it's not humidity. Cool. Like you'd be like, you'd be down South, like Charles, like South Carolina well, or North Carolina. Up in Houston. It was like, you know, about 70% humidity most of the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, dude. Oh yeah. Oh, and, and yeah. And, and, and Palm Springs, I will say, um, Sonny Bono, I'm sure you remember, he was the Republican mayor at one point, you know, there, there's a, well, I remember him and I remember Cher. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Oh, absolutely. And, he, and, and didn't he perish by skiing down and running into a tree? Yeah, so yeah, you take a, him out of Palm Springs, he doesn't know what to do. Yeah, he got he got in a big big ski accident, and uh, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing. It's uh, he. I, I read a lot of his policies. I really liked the guy. I really admired him in so many different ways. I um, I thought uh, he was uh, definitely one of a kind. And uh, he was the mayor. Then he went into Congress. And um, I didn't recall that he had been in Congress. Good for him. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, wait. Have you been? How many times have you been here? A couple? To Palm Springs? Yeah. Oh, 10, 15. Oh, where, where are you located? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. How's it going over there with all the crime, man? Are you guys doing okay with all the drugs and. I mean, I'm originally from Seattle. I don't know if I told you, Richard, but it, Seattle downtown looks like a third world country. It makes me oh. really sad because uh, Seattle downtown was one of the great places in the world. It was, it was 10, 10, 15 years ago. The best. The Pipes best. Market. Yeah. Now, now homelessness everywhere. People shooting each other. Crime running rampant. Drug, drugs everywhere. It's just like every other liberal city. I mean, it's it's. Well, you you got that. You know, San Francisco is one of the greatest cities in the world, and they got all that too. And then you got Chicago, you got New York, you got all these places. Boston, all run by liberals. High crime, homelessness. It's terrible. Well, we're Philadelphia. You're in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, the most scumbag piece of shit DA you could ever even have. you know, running the show. And then, uh, folks are not happy with Larry Krasner. It's crazy, man. What's going on. It really is. What do you think of that? What do you make of it though? You know, the, the fundamentals, if you've set government aside, which is of course impossible to do, the fundamentals in Philadelphia are terrific. And we just had an election. We just got a new mayor who will come in, uh, into office next January. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I have, Hope, hope, you know, that she will do well. We, I've actually gotten to know her quite well, and I'm hopefully going to uh, get to be a little bit involved. So who knows? We, 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 hope springs eternal. She a Democrat? Well, of course she's a Democrat. It's a big city. <laughs> what, what do you, now let me ask you, what do you think about what's going on with the presidential race? How do you feel about all these people running? What do you think? I'll tell you, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of looks like a rematch. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, fasten your seatbelt. How do do you feel about Biden? (laughs) Well, I actually was in Delaware forever and ever and got to know him really well. Oh, wow. I want to hear about this. This this is getting good. Tell me about this, man. This is getting good. (laughs) He was... So, you know, when you know a guy, you know, uh, you, you, you know, he was our senator for years and years. And, uh, you know, 
Delaware was kind of one of these out of the way places, and he. I, was like, I like Dewey Beach, man. I go, I used to I used to go to Dewey Beach quite a bit. You know Dewey Beach? Uh, we absolutely. <laughs> you know Dewey Beach? Great place, man. What a what a what a time, man. What a time. I, I had a place in Rehoboth for a while. Okay, but going back to what you said, getting to know Senator Biden. So so we did. I'm not gonna. I'm not. You know. I'm not gonna say anything bad about a fellow Delawarean since okay, I was there absolutely. for. For, for, forever and uh i tell you his son Bo, who passed away as you know from a brain cancer was one of the one of the most the salt of the earth guy but yeah you know he's got his share of troubles at the moment but what 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 was your interactions like you said you got to know him quite a bit what was that like well we were i gotta tell you we were a business in delaware and, you know, we were a bank in Delaware and we had all sorts of needs as every business does. So, you know, this comes up and you need this law changed a little bit and that law, it comes up and that law changed a little bit. And I'll be frank with you, uh, uh, Senator Biden went out of his way to be helpful to us. So, you know, when you're when you're sitting there running a business, you need all the help you can get. I hear you. I hear you. And. I mean, it sounds like he, you know, he he did he did some good things for you in regards to him as president. Are you disappointed? How would you rate his performance? Well, there, you know, it's it's you know, you got to pick you got to pick your shots. I think some of the things that have been done, the chips law, which I think was very bipartisan. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing. You know, China is is you know has emerged into our principal global competitor. Oh, yeah. We had kind of been naive on that front for, you know, really since we let him into the WTO back in 2000, you know, we kind of we kind of were a little bit of a doormat for those guys. Uh, as you know, the tone of all that changed when President Trump uh, was in office. And I think that was appropriate. And I think the CHIPS Act is something that uh, will help bring manufacturing back on shore. You know, I'm involved with a couple of business. We're investors, so we have, you know, we have a little uh, drone uh, engine manufacturer, motor manufacturing company that is bringing its manufacturing back to the United States. In part because, you know, there's now some governmental assistance there. So, I mean, I I, I like the fact that uh, we're investing in chip technology. You know, a decade ago all of our chips were made here in the United States and that was appropriate. All of a sudden, you know, 80 or 90% of our highest end chips are manufactured in Taiwan. That's an inappropriate risk for our country. And so I think bringing some of that back is a good thing. So, you know, there's, there's good out there and in the middle of all this. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And, and speaking of these chips, um, it's a big thing right now. It's 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 dominating the world, and that's why China wants to invade Taiwan. And I think the USA uh, needs to protect Taiwan uh, because Taiwan has our always been our ally, and I don't think China has any right to occupy you know that territory and try to you know just be aggressive in that manner. I mean, it's well, I, you're hundred percent right. And, uh, that's very well said. I mean, I, and I will say this, I, I, I believe 
the I believe us defending Taiwan is justifiable, but I don't I, I don't believe sending all this money to Ukraine is is okay. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's becoming redundant and it's getting out of control. And I think you'd probably agree too. It, you know, I think there's other things that we could be spending our money on. <laughs> there you go. But the, the 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 Taiwan thing absolutely justifiable. Absolutely. Well, we've you always, know, even they've even if been our buddies, they've always been our buddies. Even even if that weren't true, that, that's absolutely true, and you're absolutely right. Even if that weren't true, it is a necessity at this point in time because our highest end products, especially computers, you know, are increasingly dependent on the highest end chips. And 80 or 90 percent of the world's supply of these high end chips is made in Taiwan. So irrespective of how we felt otherwise, we got to defend Taiwan. We got to make sure they remain independent. Now, what I will tell you is, and, you know, you, you're, uh, the, the book that, uh, that I've written that I think is my excuse for being on your great show is gets into this. China's about to unravel. You know, China's, China's done so many things inappropriately, got so many problems that you know, I don't I think within a few years, they're not going to be worried about invading Taiwan. They're going to be worried about survival as a nation. Yeah. And I was just reading an article the other day and I don't really, you know, and I read it from various sources. And I don't know how true it is because China likes to lie and tries to send false messages at times to try to trick their their opponents and you know they're known for that they're they're master manipulators but long story short china says they're struggling tremendously economically i don't believe that i think that's bullshit and i think she i think he is just saying that because i think she has these scripts and i think he says things at certain times when and he, because these these people, I believe, are leading the way. They know so much more than they, China knows more than everybody else. So I don't buy it. What do you think? Do you think Chi is is playing a game? I I think that he is certainly a powerful and uh, intelligent guy. Beyond intelligent, I think intelligent is an understatement. You know, or he wouldn't be in the position he's in forever. He's got that position now forever. He's he's. He's head and the chairman for life. But but there are some problems that we get into. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one of the big ones. And that is they've just got too much pri private sector debt that our private sector debt as a benchmark is about 160 percent of GDP. Theirs is about 215 percent of GDP. They're the most their business sector is the most indebted in the world by far. And you had last year, you had Evergrande get in trouble and they declared bankruptcy about two or three days ago. Now you have Country Garden that's far over leveraged. And the issue is that these guys have built over the last 10 years, primarily have built 100 million homes that are empty. This is this is what made, that created the illusion that China was prospering because they were building stuff and all that was financed by debt and they were employing people. But all of a sudden they've got a hundred million empty homes. They can't sell. There's what they call ghost cities out there with nothing but empty buildings. That's a huge problem. 
Their demographics are terrible. Their population actually is shrinking at this point in time. They've advertised their population is about 1.3 billion. It's probably about 1.1 billion. They've been, you know, to your earlier point, they've been lying about that. But it's not just 1.1 billion. It's 1.1 billion and shrinking. And it's a problem to keep an economy moving forward when the population is declining. Last week, they announced that prices are deflating in their country. That's because demand is collapsing uh, across the board. So they got, you know, in my opinion, uh, she may be great, but he's got a, he's got, you know, kind of a more than his share of problems at this point in time. Unemploy- youth unemployment is now 21%. And they they just announced they're going to stop reporting youth unemployment because the numbers getting so bad. And I think that speaks to your earlier point that, you know, they're 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 deceitful when they talk about their numbers. And in some cases, they don't even bother being deceitful. They just don't report at all. So they got a whole bushel full of problems. And I, and I think over the next decade or so, they're just going to get way worse. And what do you what do you think? you know, in regards to where we're headed economically. I mean, do you think there's going to be a, a giant collapse worse than 2008? Because that's what a lot of people are anticipating. They think it's going to get much worse. Uh, they think we haven't even hit the, the uh, we haven't even, we've barely seen anything yet is what a lot of people are saying. Well, I, I've got to tell you, this is something I study more than anything else I study. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we studied, we were one of the folks that called the 08 crisis yeah. way back when. Yeah. And, and, and let me give you a little statistic that might give you a little bit of comfort. Mm-hmm. At, that po- at that point in time, I think one of the most important statistics within the country is the number of unsold home, the unsold home inventory. Right now, it should be, if, if times were normal, it should be about 2 million homes. It's only about 880,000 homes. So we have far more need for more homes right now than we have. The industry is going to have to build a million homes just to catch up with the demand. That's, that's really comforting news. That means that employment in that industry is going to remain okay, if not favorable, for the next few years. Contrast that to 2006. We had 4 million unsold homes, double the level that we should have today and four times the level we actually have. That, that's why the crisis was so bad and that's why it lasted so long. We built so many homes that sat empty for years that it took almost a decade for demand to catch up with the oversupply that had been created. And just one more little stat here, what, in 2002, mortgage loans in the U.S. were $5 trillion. By 2007, they were $10 trillion. They doubled in just about four years. That's what created all those empty homes. That's why so many real, real estate companies went bust, banks went bust. That's why so many individuals, mortgages went underwater. You know, we may have other problems, but we don't have that particular problem at the moment. So I'm not predicting, you know, a big calamity. We're going to have all sorts of little problems. We always do. But I think over the next couple of three years, we're going to be okay. 
Why do you think so many people are selling their homes right now? Well, you know, taking the taking the equity. Yeah, you know, they they've had such a run up in prices. You know, wealth, household wealth. To give you a statistic, household wealth during the pandemic increased by thirty trillion dollars. It was the greatest increase in wealth in U.S. history. About eight trillion of that was an increase in the property value of their homes. So I think what you're saying is exactly right. Folks, folks, you know, folks had a house that was worth 400,000. Now it's worth 600,000 or 500,000 and, and they're taking a gain. So there's a lot of that going on. I think with mortgage rates just hit 7%, which is the highest in about 20 years. So I think that's, it's all going to cool down until the Fed shifts uh, back to lower interest rates. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gains to be taken off the table and that's what folks are doing now. Now, you know, do you advise these people that are making a hundred thousand, 200,000 equity in the last couple of years to sell their homes at this moment? I mean, would that be, would that be a good recommendation? I mean, if you were, if you were telling people right now, just know, just with what we know and how uncertain things are. Is it, is it probably the best time to sell? Well, it kind of depends on where you are in your life. Right. If you're, you know, a little bit older and your kids are kind of leaving the house and you have the, the privilege or the opportunity to downsize, I think selling your home, this is a perfect time to sell to downsize. Right. If, you're, if you're earlier in your life, you're, if you sell your home, you're just going to have to buy another home that's, of similar size. So you really haven't gained anything. Your all your gains going to be have to be plowed into the new home you buy. So it kind of depends on your life circumstance. No, I hear you. I hear you. And is it are we seeing more homes being sold now than we've seen in 2008? It it by 2008 Because I remember in 2008 even early 2008 the economy was still pretty good and home home prices were rising. Yeah, it, it kind of peaked in 06. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't until late 08 that things really fell apart. But yeah, sales right now are, are as robust as they were kind of in that boom period. But I'll remember, a lot of that's because of undersupply, I think. So. And what do you think about all these people, Richard? Because you're an economics guy that tell all, all these people that say, don't buy a house. Like you got a lot of people saying buying a house is a waste of investment. Do you, do you agree with that in a way? You know, I, I do agree with that in a way, but I would caveat it a little bit. If we do have, and, and we could very easily have a little bit of a recession and a little bit of correction in real estate prices. Right. Uh, so I would say if you're going to buy, wait for things to kind of reverse a little bit. Don't buy when it's the middle of, a, of the kind of boom we've had over the last couple of years. Right. That was the mistake a lot of folks made in you know, 07 and 08. They bought at the peak. So if you're going to buy, wait until prices moderate and rates are a little bit better. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of analyses you can do that say, you know, if you rent and put the extra money into the stock market, you're going to be as well off 10 or 20 years down the road as if you buy a house. And, you know, we, I've done that analysis myself and it's close. Wow. So it's almost like either or it's like either, you know, invest in the house or invest in the stock market. I mean, it, 
really is a sounds like a preference whatever either of those things works blowing it on you know fancy cars and yeah you know that's the one thing you should try to resist particularly if you're early in your life do you think the reason a lot a lot of these financial experts say don't buy a house is just because of the upkeep and everything that comes along with it and all the bills owning a house is an expensive proposition things break down you know the hvac needs to be replaced the roof leaks things like that so most folks don't factor that into their calculation i do also think there's a lot of financial advisors that kind of have a a little bit of a conflict of interest because what they'd rather you do than buy a house is invest in some product they're selling. So I think you need to be a little cautious of that. So you look, you look at that whole scenario from both sides. You think there is a point to not buying a house, it being a waste of money. And then you see another side of, well, it is a long-term investment. So it does make sense. So you, you look at it from both sides of the angle. It sounds like. Yeah, if you you know if if you if it was two thousand and six, I'd tell you don't buy a house. If it's two thousand and nine, I'd say you know buy because prices came down so sharply. So like anything else, you got to bring a little bit of common sense to the. Equation. Will we see two thousand nine prices ever again? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure we'll see two thousand and nine prices anytime soon, but you can watch the indexes. All this data is pretty easily available, and you can see periods where prices are either flat, maybe even declining, certainly not climbing very fast. Those are the times that you should consider buying. But people tend to do the opposite. What they tend to do is they look at times when all their neighbors are seeing 10 to 15% per year gains in their houses and say, oh my God, I got to do it. That's kind of the wrong time to buy because that's you're in the middle of a boom when that happens. You're probably going to overpay at least a little bit. And, and I'll tell you, um, so you're, so you're, so, so I I just want to get like a clear, a clear kind of, uh, explanation is, is a 2009 repeat of being stuff being that cheap. Is that wishful thinking? It, it's certainly, I don't think in my analysis that that's going to happen in the next, let's call it three, four, five years. That's not saying there won't be another boom and bust, you know, five, 10 years from now. Right now, I don't think that's in the cards. What, how do you, how bad in the next year or two do you see home sales and home values, just the values of homes de- diminishing and decreasing? Like how much percent would you say they go down? I don't think we're, I don't think there's going to be a real problem. They might, they might moderate a little bit, but there's just, like I was saying early on, there's just not enough houses available. That really creates price support. There's so few homes that if you got a home, you're probably going to be able to find a buyer. It's true. It's true. And and these buyers are buying at these high interest rates. It's fascinating. What do you, what do you what do you think about this stock? And by the oh no, I want I want to ask you that because you're a banker guy. Seven percent interest rates for loans. Do you think it could go to ten percent for people buying being buying homes? Are we going to get to that point soon? You know who who can predict the future? My my own prediction is no. Absolutely not. Somewhere in the 7% range is going to be the peak for mortgage rates, you know, seven, seven and a half, something like that. I think high interest rates themselves will cause the economy to slow down. Uh, And so I can see mortgage rates over the next year or two getting back to six, five, something like that. I think short term rates 
which are now five and a quarter percent. This is the Fed funds rate that the Federal Reserve helps to set. You know, a year and year, just a little over a year ago, that was two percent. And I think that there's, you know, again, we're going to see a peak somewhere in this five percent range. I think things are going to slow down a little bit, not a lot. And the Fed's going to ease things down maybe to, you know, the three, four percent range within the next year or two. That's my prediction. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any crystal balls, though. What do you think of the stock market? What do you think that that's really in the gutter right now? What do you think is going to happen with that? You know, I, the, that's the that's the area that I'm least comfortable predicting. But, you know, I don't think it's going to col collapse. It's it's held up in a context of high interest rates. Normally, you'd have seen a three or four hundred basis point move in interest rates, which is what we've seen. You know, you would see the stock market come down quite a bit. It's been resilient. It, it may come down a little bit. It'll respond favorably when interest rates do start coming down in the next year or two. All I can say, all I can give you is the same advice I give folks. have been giving folks for 40 years, which is don't all put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify and stock, stocks ought to be part of what you do. But I wouldn't over, go overboard on stocks. And I, I got. I want to ask you, talking about this whole venture capital business and industry you're involved with, remind everybody how long you've been doing that again. We've been in venture capital now for about, you know, let's call it 12 years after we exited our energy business. And talk about some of the products that you're most proud of that you've invested in. Well, one of them, I'll, I'll talk about one, and that is uh, an electric motor for drones. You know, drones are a growth industry, and we were privileged to find a couple of, you know, genius engineers that had built, uh, developed software for these engines that caused them motors that caused them to be, you know, on the order of 70% more efficient. Uh, a company called Vertic. Um, uh, this is this is uh, some and a company's doing very very well, and I think it's going to grow very very rapidly. It's a privately held company, so you can't invest in it. But you know, with any luck, somewhere down the road they'll they'll be able to go public. And how many how many companies have you invested in with your venture capitalist firm? As you of know, all told, maybe thirty. You know, we we don't hold that many today because you exit them over time. But yeah, you know, we have half a dozen that we're actively involved in at the moment. And what's that process like, like gathering investors and getting the money together, like kind of give us like the, the curriculum with that and how long it takes? Well, the, the real issue is, I mean, the venture capital business is a is a grim business if you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, because uh, venture capitalists like ourselves and we're we're not, you know, one of the big ones by any stretch of the imagination, but. We, we pay attention to the industry. Typical venture capital company will look at 100 deals to invest in one. Those are rough odds. You know? So, you know, and by the way, when I was young and I was raising money for my businesses, I'm glad I didn't know that statistic mm -hmm. or else I'd have been discouraged. I thought, I thought, hell, I'm going to be able to raise money. No sweat. Uh, but it's, you know, Folks spend years trying to raise money for their businesses. It's truly the hardest part of the equation is getting your funding typically. So, um, and you know, we, our, our process is similar. It's, and, and for us, you know, the, 
it's kind of separating the wheat from the shaft, looking at a uh, hundred deals to try to figure out the one or two that might be good is a really hard process. Yeah, no. And, and how do you, how do you kind of break that down? Whether or not it's a good choice for you? Is it kind of a lot of reflecting, a lot of thinking, a lot of getting everybody into a room and. Well, absolutely. You know, it boils down to a few things. One of them is uh, the quality of management. Yeah. And, you know, you can have a great company. We actually looked at one recently that we thought was really a, the product was terrific, but the management was lackluster. And so, you know, we're, we're not going to manage it ourselves. So that's something we passed on. Uh, where you see, you know, I, I, I have to lit, tip my cap to you. If, if we came across somebody who was as energetic and smart as you are, that's the kind of situation where we, uh, we start to get interested. And then we look at the product. And uh, the, one of the things you look for in the product is a barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there something about this company and its product where the next guy c- couldn't de- duplicate it easily? So, for example, in this drone, it's patented software for the for the motors. Well, it would take somebody an awful lot uh, to try to uh, replicate what they're doing. There's other businesses uh, that that we see that they're great management, but anybody else could get into that business tomorrow if they wanted to. So it's going to be really hard for that uh, that entrepreneur to differentiate themselves over time. So. Those are the two biggest factors in our, and I guess the third factor is the potential size of the market. You know, if, if it's a product, that's a fabulous product, but you know, it's a very small niche market. So it, it can never be a big business eh, that tend to discourage you. If it's, if it's the kind of product where everybody in the country could potentially buy it and it could be multi hundred million dollar or even multi billion dollar market. That's the, that's the kind of thing where you get interested. No, very well said, man. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, I got to ask you, you previously you previously served Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, as you told me, and you were the chair of the Pennsylvania Housing Finance, Finance Agency and um, as board of trustee for Pennsylvania's two largest pension funds, the public, the public school employees retirement system and the Pennsylvania state employees retirement system. But yeah, talking about, you know, going back to the Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Damn, man. I mean, that's a that's a big position, man. That's a big deal. Well, you're you're too kind, but I'll tell you one thing that happened recently that underscores the relevance of those positions. And that was the failure of Silicon Valley Bank mm. out in uh, California. You know, they had the the California regulators we're overseeing that bank as well as the Federal Reserve regulators. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty clear that because what happened at SVB was easy to detect. You could have easily known that six, nine, 12 months in advance. You yeah. knew what was going to happen there. And those regulators didn't intervene. Now, you, you can certainly blame the management there because they should have caught it. But the regulators should have caught it, too. Well, that was our job in Pennsylvania is uh, examining banks to make sure problems like that didn't happen. And I'm really, really happy to report we never we didn't have a problem on my watch. So it's somebody else's problem now. Wow, man. 
amazing stuff amazing stuff and i gotta um i I also want to ask you like so wait so kind of explain though your your day-to-day operations with that like what what give us kind of the rundown of what you would be doing well it was the folks that worked for me that did it and uh where it the term the term is bank examiner yes since i had spent my career as a bank president the examiners came and examined my books and records as president of the bank. And so when I took this position for the first time ever, I was on the other side of the table. I, we were the ones that were going into the bank and saying, show us your, your records on your loan, show us your records on asset and liability management and all these other things. And our folk wasn't me, mm-hmm. but it was our staff that went through and in essence graded or evaluated the loan quality, the asset and liability management, the other key, you know, the technology, the security, the, the um, controls they had to prevent, you know, like uh, a, a breach of the technology. Those sorts of things were what our staff went in and evaluated and graded. And you, you actually create a numerical ranking. It's like getting a report card in school. You know, every bank gets a grade, a numerical grade. And unless they are scored at a certain level of, or higher, that's when the regulator intervenes and, you know, prescribes what they need to do to fix whatever it is that's the problem. That's kind of what didn't happen at SVB out in California. No, I hear you. I hear you. And what, what do you think, what do you think SVB but what do you think really caused that all them, all those treasury, all those bonds they were getting themselves into? Yeah. I mean, there were two things that happened, both of which were very peculiar. One of them was they had way more deposits than they needed, right. which, you know, and, and by the way, these are, you know, when I was, you know, we talked about me being 18 years old, this was one of my first jobs in banking was doing asset liability evaluation you know, as a as a kid that didn't know anything. And yeah, you, and that's one of the first things you learn in banking is that if your if your assets, in this case, your bonds have a five or 10 year maturity, you need to have a source of funds because banks borrow to buy bonds mm-hmm. and they borrow in the form of deposits. And you, so if you have a 10 year bond, you need to have a 10 year locked in funding. Well, checking accounts are not 10-year funding. They're one-day funding or zero-day funding because folks can pull that out any time. So they were buying 10-year bonds with one-day money. So there's two bad things that happen there. One of them is that those deposits can, can leave at any point. The other thing is when interest rates rise, the value of your bond portfolio declines. That's just you know basic math. Um, and their bond port, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think the, the decline in the value of their bond portfolio was at least a couple of billion dollars. So it was clear and it was an unrealized loss. You know, it's a bond that has declined value, but you haven't really reflected that in your accounting for it. Um, and they're supposed to disclose this. And so their net worth, the, the amount of money, the capital they had, which everybody's supposed to have a good amount of capital, was zero. And uh, so, you know, all that is banking 101. There's nothing mysterious about that. So you really, at that point in time, in my mind, and this is pure speculation on my part, 
Mm-hmm. At that point in time, you really get into social issues. Like mm-hmm. there's a very famous story that uh, uh, back in the 80s, this is the age of Michael Milken and junk bonds. And there was a bank in uh, Nebraska called Lincoln Savings run by a guy named Charles Keating. And he was violating bank regulations right and left, including by buying a lot of junk bonds from Michael Milken. And the poor regulator, whose name was Edwin Gray, comes in there and tries to call him into account, tries to get him to stop doing that. Well, Keating, of course, was liberally making campaign contributions across the board. He got five senators, four of which were Democrats, by the way, five senators to come in and bring pressure on that regulator poor Edwin Gray and got him fired. And they brought in a replacement named uh, Danny Wall, I believe, who was very happy to be compliant. And then a couple of years later, uh, Lincoln, they were called the Keating Five. Those five senators became known as the Keating Five because they basically enabled this misbehavior to continue. So um, I suspect in the case of SVB, you had a bank where a lot of the heaviest hitters in the Silicon Valley world, this includes, you know, oh, I won't even want to name names, but they were all on either on the board or customers of Silicon Valley Bank. So whoever these poor regulators are, we're going there trying to put pressure on them. And they were getting pushback from some of the most influential people in Silicon Valley and San Francisco and all that. So I think the issue is probably a social pressure thing rather than not knowing what was going on. No, that makes sense for sure. For sure. And I, I, I want to ask you, you know, I got, I got, I got a few things before I let you go. When you, when you were, you probably did audits. You probably looked at a lot of a lot of the spending that was going on in the state of Pennsylvania. Did you ever find anything that was super suspicious um, that you reported? Oh, talk about that a little bit, because I can only imagine that you know m- money comes up missing. You know, I mean, there's so many different variables we can go into. Obviously, well, through my career, we came across, not as a regulator, but as a banker. There were many times where there was malfeasance and fraud and, you know, bank presidents or employees with their hands in the till, so to speak. That happens all the time. And that happened when I was a young, you know, 20 year old kid. I remember, you know, one of my peers got uh, put put their hand in the tills. Very sad story. It was a woman who uh, whose boyfriend was putting pressure on her and she was taking money to kind of preserve that relationship. And, you know, you can imagine. So, you know, it happens in every amount at every level. For the three years I was in this position, I am very happy to report that we didn't have the, the bankers that we dealt with here in Pennsylvania were really true blue guys and uh, uh, really did a good job. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, I also want to, I want to ask you, what do you think about all these politicians, their stock trading and they're getting rich off of these different donors, whether it's big tech, whether it's wall street. Um, you know, I'm sure you'd love to give your opinion on this. one. No, I, I, you know, this, this, this is something that's troubling, you know, um, 
you know, I feel like conflicts in our political system are something we need to guard against. I'm actually writing a biography now about the first banker in the United States and, you know, I have done a lot of work. It's a, it's an issue that's been there since day one. Yeah. You know, a big business tries to buy off uh, the politicians. You know, this is, this happened to, uh, you know, in, in the institution of the, the government bond market itself back in 1791, you know, there were politicians being influenced by, you know, I think a lot of speculators doubled their money. Yeah. Of like their inside knowledge and influence uh, on politicians. So that's, it was true then, it's true today. We have to be vigilant about it. And I think politicians should be held to this highest standards relative to the stocks they own and their disclosure about those and, you know, the elimination of conflicts. Absolutely. And by the way, if we do a great job and we clean it up today, we're going to have to stay vigilant or five or 10 years from now, they're going to figure it out the loopholes and we're going to be back in the suit. So it's not something you can do one time. It's something you have to be vigilant about at all times. No, I agree. I hear you, man. And, um, I see here, you're also the co-founder of, um, energy plus an electricity and natural gas supply company. Um, but what, 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 talk about that a little bit. What are your day-to-day operations there? We, this is back in, I'm trying to remember the exact year, but you know, we entered the business in, you know, let's call it, uh, 2008, just as a lot of states were deregulating from the large utilities, you know, back in the old days, you know, Con Ed and Pico and, you know, I don't know who it is in Florida, but, you know, they had absolute monopolies on their territory. And uh, some folks came along and started to deregulate those markets so that entrepreneurs like ourselves could enter the markets and we could compete for the business of the man on the street with the big utilities. And we, we saw that opportunity and we said, you know, we ought to be able to succeed in a context like that because we've been entrepreneurs all our lives. We've been competing all our lives and the big utilities really have been essential regulated monopolies and aren't that knowledgeable about how to market and how to grow uh, businesses. So, we did well. We, you know, in about three years, we went from zero to about 500 million in sales. And, uh, and then uh, one of the big uh, generators uh, saw us and liked us and bought our business from us. So, uh, but for a while there, we were in electricity and natural gas. Wow, man. Good, good stuff. And what, what do you think about this whole BS green agenda and them trying to eliminate fossil fuels, the nonsense going on with you know, trying to get rid of natural gas and all this shit. I mean, these people are crazy. These people are crazy. Well, I, but I'd say one thing, and you know, this is food for thought. You know, in in my formative years, all the oil was controlled by OPEC. And, oh, absolutely. And that was that was what brought the crisis and the inflation of the seventies. Mm-hmm. And in my business. I don't like being over-reliant on a single vendor or a single source of supplies. Right. And I will tell you that I'm, a, you know, forget politics. 
I'm a little uncomfortable just as a business person having all our uh, all our eggs in the you know uh, carbon-based energy basket because you know no matter what we do, there's some guys in Saudi Arabia or Russia or wherever that have a lot of control over this that I wish they didn't have. So you know, if we're up to me and it's not, you know, I would try as a risk diversification matter, I would try to have two or three very different sources of, of energy, not, not because I'm green and not because that, because I don't like being beholden to, to other folks. So, you know, I, I would try to, I would make the investments and I don't know, you know, what all involves, you know, we did some work on that a few years ago. I'm a little out of date at the moment, but I, I wouldn't want to be overly dependent on foreign sources of energy. And we still are, you know, a lot of folks say we're energy independent now. That's not true. Actually, it's, we're better off than we were a decade or two ago, but we're not energy dependent completely. And I'd like to be independent completely. Absolutely. It also says here before, you know, I, I just have one or two more things before I let you go. I got to get to my next guest, but I could talk to you all day. I love talking to you. Um, you are the founder of the economic data service, uh, Tycos, tycosgroup.org, which specializes in analyzing private debt trends and the email newsletter service, uh, which focuses on nonfiction literature. Yeah, we, you know, this really comes out of my banking background and our, you know, our economic work, but we do a lot of study of this, the seven largest economies in the world. You know, it's, there's 200 countries in the world, but seven of them together constitute two thirds of world GDP, amazingly enough. So if you, you can, there's 200 countries, but you, all you have to do is really study seven of them to know most of what's going on in the world. And that's Japan, China, India, Germany, France, the UK, and the United States. So we spend an enormous amount of time studying those seven economies. And we publish uh, a lot of research and folks that we have a weekly video folks can sign up for and so forth. Um, and it just tries to bring folks up to speed on issues that relate to problems in the private debt sector. Gotcha. 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 And then um, you told me earlier, the, the banks you sold to JP Morgan, those were first USA and Juniper Bank, right? That's right. Very nice, man. That's awesome. Um, yeah. What a life you've lived and you've got this new book out. I want to, I want to plug that before you go. Um, it's called the paradox of debt, a new path to prosperity without crisis. Um, and you've all, you're also the author of the, the, of the case for a debt jubilee, a policy expo exploration of debt relief. Um, wait, oh, no, you have a lot of different books, it looks like. How many books have you written? This is, this is the fifth. Okay, you know, no, I'm going to read them right now, actually. So you got the one I just said, you've got the case for jubilee. A policy, a policy exploration for, of debt relief, an, illustri an illustrated business, business history of the United States, the story of our nation's business progress, a brief history of doom, a chronicle major world of financial crisis, and the, nec and the next economic disaster, a book with a new approach for predicting and preventing financial crises. 
Well, that. you're great to mention those. The paradox of the debt is the one where where that's out right now. I actually make the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, so it's doing very very well. And it gets to these seven countries we were just talking about. If you re if you're interested in macroeconomics, this is a book you ought to buy and read. Uh, you know, if you're not, you're going to be bored. <laughs> But we get into a lot of data, and I think folks with that orientation would really enjoy it. Now, Richard, I have to ask you: the debt is something we're all concerned about. I mean, we're thirty, we're thirty-two trillion in debt, and I'm sure it's something you often, you know, think about and can worry about. You know, want to fix? Um, will we fix it in our lifetime? I don't think we will. I mean, look, well, at all the, more, look at all the interest. Look at all the interest we're paying and all the money we're borrowing. Well, I, I want to give you a little different perspective on this. Uh oh, I like this. So okay. I, I, I always to... like the different perspectives. This is good. Okay, come on, love this. I don't. I don't want you to kick me around. Oh, well, that. I like optimism. So if you're bringing me some optimism, that you know, I'm I'm gonna get. I'm gonna feel very refreshed. So okay. So over the three years of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Government debt increased by $8 trillion. Yeah. A lot of that happened during Trump's administration. Um, that $8 trillion increase created $30 trillion in household wealth. Because when the government spends money, it doesn't disappear. It goes into household bank accounts. The government's debt's $32 trillion. Household net worth right now is 150 trillion. When government spends money, including when it pays interest, that just goes into household checking accounts. So you know maybe we can get on the on the show another time and talk about this. But if you actually get into the data, and a lot of this happened, you know, in in uh, in 2020, increases in government debt is spending that shows up in the in the uh, checking accounts of households. So no, I don't think it's something we have to be that concerned about. I think most of the issues and most of the problems relate to private sector debt, not government debt. Makes sense. Makes sense. And um, I do, I want to ask you this um, before I let you take off here. It says you're doing a lot of work in Philadelphia. Uh, you're doing, you're, you're serving on a lot of boards um says you're serving on the university of pennsylvania pennsylvania board of trustees and the penn medicine board of trustees and you're on a number of business boards you are the chair of the university of pennsylvania press and the chair of the innovation advisory board of the abra abrams abrams Hey, yeah, Abramson Cancer Center, and you also serve on the governing board of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and the board of the Fund for the School District of Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, I, I have the privilege of, of being involved in a lot of things. I don't have to do a lot of work, but I get to see the real good work of others. Right, and, and what, what would be your solution to conclude here to fix Philadelphia? It's really gone downhill. I used to love going to Philadelphia, and now I'm kind of scared. Well, um, it's just like my hometown of Seattle, man. I like notice a pattern. Democrat run cities, L.A., New York, Chicago, Detroit, Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis, it, San Francisco. It goes on and on. Every city you're seeing with homelessness. It's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. I, I will tell you the reason to be optimistic about Philadelphia. 
And that is most of the real, not most, a lot of the real breakthroughs in genetic engineering and biotech is happening in Philadelphia. There were some breakthroughs about 10 or 15 years ago. They've been capitalizing on. There's a bunch of spinoffs in biotech. These are the folks that have cured several types of cancer. And, you know, aside from, and th this is where, you know, uh, a lot of the genetic engineering is going on that I think is going to start curing disease after disease over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Well, that creates a lot of spinoff businesses. And I think if Philly can kind of get its act together on crime, which is down actually a little bit over the, over the previous year, and we can kind of either support or get out of the way of the private sector, particularly in an area like that. I think uh, Philly um, uh, can have a, have a, have a good future. If we don't do that, you know, things are going to continue to spiral in the wrong direction. I, I'd like to think that I can have a hand in what happens over the next few years around here. I'm at least going to try. Uh, but yeah, it's not pretty right now. I hear you. Well, Richard, I love having you with us. Tell, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get involved, all that good stuff. It's paradoxofdebt.com, or you can go to my website, which is richardvague.com. But let me say to you, Rory, that it has really been a privilege to be on your show. I'm very impressed with you. Uh, you have an enormous amount of intellectual curiosity. Uh, I think your listeners are privileged to have you in your show. So thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you, sir. And God bless you. And, I, and I'm wishing you the best and keep up the fantastic work. And I could talk to you all day. So we're going to get you back here soon. And I got your number. We'll be in contact. Uh, thank you. All, all right. We'll be right back, everybody. Coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. This is Rory Sauter and the News. Can you please tell the jury why you're here today? Ms. Hurd accused me of abuse. My ex-husband is suing me. Brutal, cruel. This is humiliating for any human being to go through. And all false. Amber Heard forever changed Mr. Depp's life and reputation. Behind the fame, you're going to see who the real Johnny Depp is. Depp was the one who wanted the cameras in the courtroom. She didn't. I would argue it's a PR campaign disguised as a defamation case. There's the man himself. It's been a social media circus of commentary from creators and influencers. Did you commit any kind of prank? Absolutely not. On my side of the bed was human fecal matter. <laughs> this has moved away from a news story or a lawsuit. And it's transformed into a cultural moment. People are live tweeting. People are live streaming. Where does it end? The engagement is phenomenal. Videos can be very easily manipulated and republished. We're being influenced by bots interacting with bots. Johnny Depp is clearly winning right now in the court of public opinion. I've never been so scared in my life. She's acting. This trial is about so much more than Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. Why are we all so fascinated with this case? Because they're famous, because of the details. What did the jury see? It just kicked me. It didn't happen. I don't know who to believe. I was hitting you. Mr. Mr. Depp is your victim, isn't he? This is not so much about the legal merit, but rather what the public perception is. And that leads us to the real question, which is, what is 
the actual truth. is still spreading. I'm afraid there's nothing else we can do. There is one person who might be able to help. Our program is a two-pronged treatment outside Mexico City. The results have been stunning. She saved my life. You're in very good hands with us. After that, what happens then? Your whole life happens then. John Kramer. According to these scans, the tumor was never removed. How much time do I have? Months, at best. I still have a lot of work that needs to be done. Tended to cure me, but what I have planned for each of you is very real. Peace came upon me, no light, no sound. The only thing I have not provided is your anesthetic, but trust me, you will want to remain alert. the men to cheat. You pick John Kramer? Please, don't hesitate. Place a big enough piece of your cerebral tissue into the glass enzyme tank. This will save your life. So this is not retribution. It's a reawakening. The choice is yours. Our lives are the sum of our choices. And we cannot escape the past. Ethan, this mission of yours is gonna cost you dearly. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. It's been a long time, friend. You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. 
listen to me. The world's coming after you. His fate is written. Shall we write yours too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. What's your objective? What's your ultimate objective? Your life will always matter more to me than my own. None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back, the My Pillow guy. And you're looking good. He's still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever, My Pillow 2.0. Wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took My Pillow's patented bill and combined it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented My Pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, MyPillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that MyPillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. MyPillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of MyPillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is gonna give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side, well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit mypillow.com. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom?
With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back. Rory Sutter and the news coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. My next guest, who's with us right now, Steve, can you hear us? Steve, you with us? Steve, Steve Gorham. Yes. How are you, sir? Hello. How's it going, Kate? Great, Rory. How are you? That oh, sounds I'm good now. I don't. I'm not sure what was going on. Oh yeah, it's perfect now. Uh, doing very well, man. Good to see you. First time on the show. First and foremost, give us a bio, a background, how it all started for you, all that fun stuff. Great. So uh, 30 years as an engineer and a business executive, electronics industry. How to work business executive in 2008. Um, thought I could uh, write books and sell books and start looking at topics and uh, got onto the issue of uh, man-made climate change, <laughs> read all of Al Gore's books and decided fairly quickly that I thought he was incorrect. And uh, so I wrote my first book, Climatism, uh, in 2010, and uh, realized pretty early on that I, I couldn't support myself just writing books. So I became a professional public speaker. I speak to industry groups, agriculture, energy, uh, transportation, uh, metals, all sorts of different folks. And um, I've written three more books. And so I now do this full time and, and uh, talk to groups about uh, the energy transition, uh, which is, is actually moving society in a direction it probably shouldn't be going. And as well as the, uh, the fears of man-made climate change, which are probably unfounded. Climate is dominated by natural factors. Uh, so that's what I do. And a uh, new book out, uh, Green Breakdown, the coming renewable energy failure. Uh, society wants to get to net zero emissions by 2050, but it isn't going to happen. We're going to have a lot of things that, that uh, are going to force people to go back to what is sensible in terms of energy use. And now kind of kind of talk about this new book. How is the sound? Okay. It's, it's going in and out. There's kind of a, there's kind of a delay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Well, I'm missing, I'm missing, I'm missing some of your words. <laughs> how, how about mine? Are mine coming through or not? Yeah, let me, let's take a commercial. Let's try it again. We'll come right back. We'll come right back. We'll come right back. Uh, okay. I'm Mike Lindell and I'm excited to announce my new product, okay. my coffee. I, I get products all the time from entrepreneurs like my new platform, mystore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. 
I spent the last four months doing my due diligence, and this family-owned business micromanages every step from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever gonna have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras. Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants, which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA. It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use the promo code and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, plus it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now. Stevie with us. Stevie there. I am. I've, I'm closing everything else. Um, I signed in again. Yes. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, there might there. There's a little bit of a slight delay, as you were I saying. Did, though I did sign out. As you were saying. This is really strange. This is really strange. My network connection is ten slash ten. It says. Um. As you were saying about the climate, but I don't. Uh, the audio is. <laughs> Try taking your headphones off and see. Well, um, yeah. Okay, I have been doing that as well. Breaking up. What about now? How does it sound now? How does it sound now? Well, it sounds okay, except uh, some of your words are still broken. Um, how are mine? Uh, it's clear, so you can't really hear me. This is crazy. Yeah, we'll have to reschedule, Steve. We'll get rescheduled. We'll make it happen. I heard that pretty well. Can you hear me? What about now? Yes, I heard that. Yeah, there's a delay. There's a delay there's going a back. delay for some reason. Yeah, we'll have we'll have to. Well, you were talking about the climate. Do you remember talking about the climate before we got cut off?
Yeah. Sure. I'm, I'm, Why don't I'm you noticing... just raise your hand when you want me to stop for a moment? <laughs> I'm noticing a big delay. We'll get you rescheduled, Steve. We'll get you rescheduled. Um, everybody, I want to thank you all uh, for yeah. tuning in today. Okay, that would be great. Uh, it's been a fantastic yeah, show. This isn't going to work. Uh, we will be back live again next week. Uh, I hope you all have a great weekend. Uh, until, until next time, I'm Rory Sodder. God bless. Much love. Cheers, everybody.